we're going to continue our series on on the return and um, the goal of the series the return was to take us back to key foundational truths that were revealed um, right after the right after jesus left the earth and his disciples um you know were, were walking and carrying that message and I am going to talk, I think we texted out the subject title and emailed it out, but I'm going to talk to you today about how the gospel confronts racism. So heavy topic for you. Um, Andrea, can you pull up the slide and open this first picture? I'm going to start my point here. Um, As you know, this is a picture of Ahmad Arbery. And on February 23, 2020, Ahmad Marquez Arbery, an unarmed 25-year-old African-American man, was fatally shot after being pursued and confronted by Travis McMichael and Gregory McMichael, who were armed and driving a pickup truck. The incident took place in Satia Shores, a community near Brunswick in Glen County, Georgia. On the same day as the Glen County PD began the investigation, it claims that the Brunswick District Attorney's Office advised them to make no arrests in this case. And the Brunswick District Attorney's Office has since denied such a claim. And on a local attorney released a video that went viral on May 5th. And on May 7th, May 7th 74 days after the after no arrests, both men were charged and arrested with murder. Now, I, uh, I have, uh, from watching social media and chatting with people and, you know, and friends on the internet and seeing what different people have said, I know that almost everyone that I'm in contact with was either saddened or outraged by these events that took place and, and assumed based on video, video evidence that this was indeed a racially motivated crime. But I want personally to drill down to a couple of responses that you might have when you've looked at this injustice and this tragedy and maybe that you might be thinking about even right now as I'm talking about this. The first possible response that you could have had when you saw this is that you could have had the response of, of seeing that this is representative, representative of a larger issue of racism in our country. Um, this is being one more death, one more story indicative of a larger story of white prejudice, white privilege, and racial bias towards African-Americans. The second response that you could have possibly have was, this is two idiot hick racists who need to go to prison forever, but this story does not really reflect a larger problem with racism in our society. And as I bring this up, I feel like it's like your own opinions and your own biases that you already have are already going to be coming up in you. And what I'm asking you today is just for a moment to lay down whatever your opinions are and to open your mind and heart 
as we're going to just begin a, a journey of some questions. Now, as you guys know, this last year during our wayfinding series, we brought in my buddy, Antong Lucky, who came and talked to us, had an initial conversation about various matters, his life, violence, um, racism. And I think it's important. Um, one, one of the things that the church is called to do, and we can see this in the early church and in the scriptures and in the epistles, is to not become subservient to cultural narratives, but to address and to talk about cultural narratives. And so I feel like it's important for us to as a community to have these kinds of conversations. And I want to start by making two points um, today in my talk. And I, and I want to give this caveat because I cannot do justice in a week, these two points. I mean, it, it would take me a long time to really give enough thought and, and presentation and conversation around the two points that I want to make. Um, but but I'll, I'll be brief to start the conversation this morning. The first point that I want to make is that unifying people and healing racial and ethnic boundaries is not an ancillary task of the gospel, but an essential task of the gospel. That unifying people across racial, ethnic, so you know, social, uh, socioeconomic boundaries. These things aren't merely some trimming like the decoration on the tree. It is a core essential part of the gospel. And I will start that case this morning. The second point that I want to make personally is to acknowledge that racism is an issue today in our society and not only some distant part of our past. So I want to start by telling you a story of my mom. My parents used to go to Clear Path and they, uh, when they moved to North Dallas, they were five minutes from uh, Gateway North Dallas campus and decided they wanted to go in there and plug in their community. And they became very good friends with one couple, probably their closest friends at Gateway. And the, the husband is African-American and the, and the woman is white. And they, they spent a lot of time with this couple. And my mom was having a conversation with the wife one day and she was telling of how they've had their, if you look at their kids, their kids don't look white, you know, they, they look African-American. And so they were talking about this conversation. They live in North Dallas, which is a relatively white and affluent area about how they have encouraged their boys to always have at least half a tank of gas in their car and to not stop at gas stations in their neighborhood after 10 o'clock at night because there have been times in their life where people either got afraid or assumed something negative just by their presence of being in that neighborhood. And, um, and she went on to say that their father had had this conversation with them of like the bulleted out very carefully all the things that they have to do in case they are ever pulled over 
by a police officer. And my mom had this realization that she had never had a conversation. They had never had a conversation with myself and my brother about what time at night they need to go to a gas station or how they need to act if a police officer shows up. Because those aren't um, issues that would ever even cross your mind if you were, you know, a uh, you know, white person going to a gas station at 1030 at night in North Dallas. And so what happened from this conversation is that it cracked open a door in my mom's perspective about what, at the very least, the experience of being an African-American person in our society could be. Now, what happens is, is that there's this thing I've seen where proximity creates understanding. When you are around people and when you hear stories that are different than yours and you genuinely listen to these stories, it literally creates new neural pathways in, in your brain. And if we are unwilling to drop our opinions for a moment to listen to the stories of, our, of others, it's actual evidence that bias and prejudice still remain strong in us. Now, I don't, I don't believe that you have to agree with everything a person has to say to stop and hear them and to listen to their experience without first judging their experience and their opinion based upon your pre-existing opinion. And so I believe that this is a cultural issue that is important, and I want to talk a little bit more about this at the end, is important for us, no matter what opinion we come to, to stop and be people who are open-minded to listen and hear the story and experiences of others. And I want to pause that. And I want to go to scripture and talk about the pertinence of this to the gospel. So I'm going to read from Ephesians 2, which is a, a, a scripture that we have read a lot in our, in our uh, tenure. It's been one of the highlight scriptures. And I want to focus on one of the ones that we've, we've focused on the most. And it's at the very end of Ephesians 2. It's Ephesians 2.22. It says this, And in him... You two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. I want to make this point. God has a desire to dwell and rest with his people on the earth. That is, a, is at the foremost of God's intent and in his heart with the gospel is that he wants to come and rest with his people. And he will do anything he can to see that end happen. So everybody say this, say, God dwells in me. I want you to say this. I've, everybody say, God dwells in we. So when you look at scripture, while God does dwell in me, I am his temple. Um, there is something that scripture speaks to 
that there is an exponential possibility of God's dwelling in the earth when unity is present. A couple scriptures that come to mind are, it says, when two or three are gathered, what does it say? I am in the midst of them. Or where two or three agree upon something, it will be done. There is an emphasis in scripture that unity, the environment of unity, creates an atmosphere for God's dwelling to be felt and God's dwelling to be experienced in material ways. And so unity is of, of one of the most essential values of the totality of God's kingdom and his perspective with the gospel, that his people, that his children are in unity with each other and they're in unity with him. And so I want to read to you this Ephesians 2 passage and talk about this for a moment. In Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, it says this, Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you once who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made these two groups one, and by destroying the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to you, those who were near. And through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone in him who the whole, who the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So here are the words that describe this unifying of the other peoples of the world into Israel as a nation. It says, no longer separate, destroying the dividing wall of hostility, one new humanity. All this language used to define what the dwelling of God on earth would look like. Now, I want to back up and give some context on this verse with Israel's story. So, Abraham, the, Israel's entire story, always we, we can look back and starts with Abraham. Of course, we have the chapters in Genesis, you know, first 10 chapters in Genesis that talk about the, uh, you know, ancient archaic stuff, but we, you know, the Israel story starts with Abraham. And Abraham is this guy, um, he, he calls on the name of the Lord, 
And God comes and makes covenant with this man, Abraham. His actual name was Abram, and God changed his name. But this is the man that God initially made covenant with. And what did he tell him? He said that you are going to become a nation through your offspring. You all know the story. He had, he had Isaac with Sarah in this old age, and God used this offspring to make a mighty and great nation. So then Israel comes about, and this nation grows. It grows from, um, you know, Abraham, I, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to the to the twelve sons of Jacob, to the twelve tribes of Israel, to you know millions of people who come out of uh, out of Egypt and you know go wander around in the wilderness, and you know they move into the promised land and eventually establish these kingdoms, and then they go into exile and they return, and then you know ultimately the end is this this nation is built. And, and then you have Jesus. So through Israel comes Jesus. And Jesus becomes the sacrifice by which hostility is thrown down. And by his blood, all the nations are brought into this covenant. Now, I want you to see that Israel did not understand the fullness of the covenant that they were carrying. And this is really clear because there's so much of Jesus saying that they, that they missed it. The covenant of Abraham wasn't just to be a blessing, for God to be a blessing to Israel. The covenant with Abraham was that he would be a blessing and that his people would be a blessing and that through them, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And so... When, when you get to Israel's story, when Jesus has come, they are, they are an oppressed people inside an oppressive kingdom, losing their culture and their identity. The, the reason that the New Testament is written in Greek and Aramaic is because little Hebrew boys and girls had stopped speaking Hebrew as the primary language in their home. And so they had become, out of many, many years of struggle, had become obsessed about one thing, the God of Israel delivering the people of Israel and kicking butt on everybody who was against Israel. But God's original covenant for the people of Israel was to be a nation through whom all other ethnicities, all other nations were blessed. Now, when we hear the word nation, we think of the modern construct of nation. In, in the late 1700s, you had a treaty that was signed that said you're a citizen of the sovereign nation state that you were born into. And so what are the lines on the map? That's, that's what you're a citizen for. The historical understanding of nation before, um, before the Enlightenment for modern Europe, the historical understanding of nation is a people group. That's why the Hebrews, it wasn't, you know, they were the Hebrew people, whether they were in Egypt or Babylon or... Israel, it did not matter where they were. The point was not the geographical boundary that they found themselves. It was that they are a people group. And so the historical understanding of nation isn't a, um, isn't a set of, of geographical boundaries, but, a, but an ethos and a language and a shared culture and value. And so, but they misunderstood. They were, they were ready for somebody to come and kick some butt on their behalf. But the covenant that God had given them was so that all the nations would be blessed through this nation. 
Now, Israel's bias and their prejudice is very evident when you read Scripture. Look, look at Acts 10. Peter, who has already preached the gospel at Pentecost, God comes down to him in a vision, and he shows him unclean things, and he tells him to get up and eat. And He's like, I don't do that. I do Jewish stuff. And, you know, he ends up having this man taken to the house of Cornelius, and they get the Holy Spirit. And he goes, oh, my goodness, I now realize that the gospel's not just for the Hebrews. It's for the Gentiles. It's for all you other people that I thought so less of. Like, even after he had walked with Jesus, he had preached the gospel, he did not understand that this wasn't just for his race, his people, his nation, his ethnicity, and that the, at the very thrust of this gospel was God grafting in these other nations, these other people groups, these other ethnicities into the fold. Look, look at Paul's rebuke of Peter later on. Paul comes to him and says, Peter, you are acting you're highlighting the rituals of, you know, the Hebrew way, and you're, and you're not dining with people who aren't Hebrews. This is not right. This is not appropriate. Like, there was still this, like, prejudice bias that's in Peter that Paul's having to come to him and directly confront because it is not the gospel. Um, we see it in Jesus in his parable of the Good Samaritan. He, he's, um, he's inviting um, them to see that the the one who was good in the story wasn't the priest or the Levite who crossed on the other side of the road. It was the Samaritan who they thought less of Samaritans, who was the kind one. Like we see this tension littered throughout the New Testament that God is assigning on his people to be ministers of reconciliation, bringing all nations into the blessing of their nation and their prejudice and bias getting in, a, in the way of what God wants to do through them. Now, what happened at Acts 2? It's so profound. We miss it all the time. I love it. I want to say it a thousand times, but you have all, it says that a, a, a Jew from every nation of the earth was present and received the gospel. And what happened was, is they would all go back to their homes and they would distribute this to the whole world because God's goal is not one people group, one geography. It's all people groups. It's all nations. And he's drafting all people and he's destroying the, the, the dividing line of hostility. And so I want you to see that the goal of God is unifying people. The goal of God unifying people is the outpouring of his spirit. And the goal, the God unifying, or excuse me, the goal of God unifying people is the outpouring of the spirit. And the goal of the outpouring of the spirit is God unifying his people under one banner of love. When we work toward the end of unity amongst peoples, we work towards the end of the outpouring of God's spirit upon all flesh. And if we exclude ourselves from the mission of bringing unity among the people groups on the earth, we exclude ourselves from one of the essential key elements of God's vision for humanity. One people under one banner together. Okay. 
if you can pull up the next um, deal. Uh, here we go. I have told this story so many times I can't count. And I'll keep telling the story. I think one of the things that we, we uh, don't do well enough in our modern times is tell the stories of the past and retell them and retell them and retell them. The Hebrew people understood where they could came from because they retold their stories. Now, I want you to understand where you came from as, as a part of this church. I don't know that I would call us Pentecostal or charismatic or put those, but we are a part of the Pentecostal charismatic heritage. That's, that's where most of our, especially the leaders, the roots come out of. Now, this man on the screen, his name is William Seymour. Now, in 1901 in Topeka, Kansas, there was a man named Charles Parham who started teaching and um, in a new way about the gifts of the Spirit and believing in this thing he called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And when he prayed for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I've talked about this recently, um, you know, a whole bunch of people got filled. Now, in later years, there were a lot of people that were really, um, in, they were really intrigued and excited about this supernatural stuff that was going on, this Holy Spirit stuff that was going on. One of those people was this man named William Seymour. Now, where Charles Parham was teaching was a school that would not allow black, uh, you know, any or men to be there learning. And so, so William Seymour sat at the window edge of the classroom to listen to this man teaching about the Holy Spirit because he was so hungry for what God had for him. And I just like, this is, a, this is an African-American man who's the son of a slave who is willing, because he's so hungry for what God has, to sit at the sit at the edge of a school listening in that won't even allow him in the room. I want us to process that. Now, if you go to the next slide. That's okay. God eventually brought this man to Southern California, outside of LA, this place called Azusa Street, where millions of people came in a five-year period. People experienced miracles. There were people whose arms grew out. All of this stuff happened. And, and this movement simultaneously with, uh, at the same time in 1905, there was, a, there was an outpouring uh, called the Welsh Revival um, that happened under Evan Roberts. The, these two simultaneous gatherings launched the Pentecostal charismatic movement into the world. And from that point, there have been about a billion people who've come into the faith because of these movements. It's, it's the greatest number of people come to confess the name of Jesus since the beginning of the church started from an African-American son of a slave being willing to preach the gospel and lead people into the presence of God in a time in the U.S. where Jim Crow law still existed and where slavery was only just a distant, it was only just a faint memory. It wasn't that far back. And it is not random to me that God used this particular man at that particular time to lead what would be the most monumental and important movement of the day. Now, I, I want you to see this 
people don't realize this, is that the initial movement of Pentecostalism, it was for, there were, it was mostly for the poor. There were a lot of people that encountered this. There were, there were the wealthy came too, but it was held in meetings that weren't in the rich parts of town. It was, it was, they had to go, they called it the other side of the tracks move. Like you had to go the other side of the tracks. The Pentecostals were, were amongst the poor. The second thing is they were the, one of the first movements among the church that were advocating for women in ministry. Some of the most significant leaders of the first 30 years of Pentecostal were, um, were advocating for, or were women and were advocating for women in ministry. So you have the, the, the poor being ministered to and, and, and being blessed and being empowered. You have women being empowered. You have, uh, you know, you have racial boundaries being like blurred. You have all this stuff happening at the presence of these, of this outpouring of the spirit. They, they, it, it's like we can sometimes forget because our, our frame of reference is only our, we kind of see, uh, the archaicness of Pentecostalism now, and we think of it as something far different than what it was. It, when it came onto the scene, it was criticized. It was radical. It was, they were, it was like women are preaching. They're like, they're, they're, you have you know, different ethnicities meeting together. You have all of this stuff. You have crazy miracles. Like it was totally radical when it came onto the scene. And it's that which has caused so many people to come and know Jesus. Um, we need to remember what God has done and how he has done it. And one of the most key fundamental ways that he did that this happen is that the wealthy, the poor, the, the black, the white, the women, the men came together in one place. And that's exactly what Acts 2 describes. Joel prophesies, it was coming a day where your men and your women where you're young and you're old, where there will be no divide. That is what Pentecostalism is. That is what the movement of, that even starts at Acts 2 is something that destroys every boundary and brings all people on an equal playing field in the Spirit of God so that all the nations can know who He is. That's how God wants to solve the problem of racism is that he wants to bring people unified by his spirit. And my concern is right now, is that the church, especially those that we would, you know, would be the white church, the white leaders, are not as active and as vocal as we could be about bringing a greater unity and a greater awareness to issues that exist today. Now, what we can do on the flip side is that we can get the problem right and miss God's antidote. In Genesis, all the peoples of the earth became unified at the Tower of Babel by the human spirit, the, by the ego and the pride of the human spirit to build this thing up in their own pride. And that did not end well. Like we will not be able to solve this problem through the human spirit although it will appear as though that's a good route, that it is not the kind of thing that will solve the problem that we have. Like, I believe that 
as those who are Jesus believing, Jesus following, spirit filled people, we are those who are called to invite the Holy Spirit to come in a way that would unify people, that would bring people together. And I believe that, that he, is, he is wanting to heal the, the um, racial barriers that exist and persist even today. Now, I want to tell you of one dream I had and one vision I had and, and tell you some prayers that emerged out of those. Some years ago, I had this vision I can't remember what time of the day, but it was a very clear vision. It was very short. I um, was, where was I? I don't know. That's not the point. In, in my vision, the, our church was in some sort of new building. I don't know what it was. This is not about building. We're not about to talk about a building. That's not the point. But we were, we were in some new space. And at the very center of the space, like right when you walked in, was this um, Andy Warhol style painting of Dr. King, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And when I had that vision, I felt like God spoke to me and said, one of the things that will be a future um, value and essential part of the path is that this will be a place of diversity and unity among people of different races and backgrounds. Second dream I had is that and this this one um, I've not been able to shake. I was I was in North Park Mall in this dream, and I was at the super expensive part. I was at the part where it's like Versace and Armani and all the stores that are like, you know, you pay ten thousand dollars for a pair of shoes, whatever it is. And uh, Mother Teresa was like. On display, she was like up on a stage and, and greeting people in this place. And I, I woke up from that dream and I immediately uh, just knew that what, what, God, what God was speaking to me is he's saying, Jordan, I'm going to use you to bring those, the wealthy, bring those who have to those that have not not so that they can help them, but so they can actually counter Jesus in those who are oppressed, who are hurting, who are broken. If you don't know Mother Teresa, she stood for those who were oppressed, who are hurting, who are broken, who did not have a voice. And I felt like God saying, like, no, I'm going to bring those who have to those who are oppressed, and they're actually going to encounter Jesus in that place. And so what emerged out of the, this vision and this dream that I had is that I've been praying for some number of years that God would make our church a place of greater diversity and greater unity. And quite frankly, like I'm not satisfied with where we are at in that regard. Now, it, I don't know how to like manufacture that. I don't know how to make that happen. I don't want to manufacture that. Well, I do believe that that is core to our calling as a church and to the gospel that we want to be ministers of reconciliation, demonstrating what it looks like to, to be angry at injustice, to heal um, uh, hostility, and to bring people together. The way that God can use the church to demonstrate is it's not that we have to be the people telling everybody else what to think or what to believe or what opinion to have. It's exactly how he worked at Azusa Street. It's that there can be such a unity 
and value and love present in, in our community, that it shines brighter than any other division or any other brokenness beyond this place. And I believe, uh, I don't know, have any salute, like answers of this is how we get there, but I believe that God wants to impregnate some people with the prophetic idea that God wants to bring a greater healing among people groups today in this time in our life. And I want to put that out there. And so here's what I'm going to finish with is that what am I asking you to do? What can you do? Because, you know, that was a big question. Even when we had the last conversation with Anton is what do you practically do? So here I'm going to tell you something very simple that you, that you can do to, first of all, pray with us, pray that our community can be a place of expressed unity and um, healing for people and that, that, that people won't get friends with those who look like them or act like them or have the same kind of money to drive the whatever, like that we will be a, a type of people unified by the fellowship of the spirit. That's what Ephesians 2 describes. People, that it doesn't matter whether you're slave or free or black or white or, or Jew or Gentile. It's that, we, it's that we are unified by the presence of God, not by the common interest. The first thing I'm asking you to pray, maybe we'll throw it on the daily prayer, is that I'm asking you to pray with us that God would make us a place of unity and diversity. The second thing is very simple. If you're in the, if you're in the boat of a person who is like, I don't know what I think about all this. Here's what I want to ask you to do is start by sitting down with somebody that you know and trust and asking them, what their experience is, particular to this issue. And don't come in to argue or make a point or like, you, you don't have to like, you don't have to do all that. Just start by asking somebody that you trust. This is my encouragement homework for people that you, that you can trust what your experience is. What is your experience? Now I, I've, studied enough psychology and therapist stuff. I'm by no means an expert in that to know that the worst thing you can do uh, in a conflict is when somebody presents a problem to just say, Oh, that problem doesn't exist. That is the, is the fundamental thing that will inflame the trauma of that problem more than anything else is just to, is just to say to a person, well, that experience isn't a reality. Now, I'm, I'm being careful to say we don't have to agree with everything everybody says, but we do have to listen to people. We do have to dig into what people's experience are so that we can learn. And what often happens is, is that we never are put into the situations or put ourselves into the situations to be exposed in a vulnerable way to what are the experiences of others. And now, if, and if you are in, um, if you, just whether this was now, or whether this was Hebrew people in Rome, or wherever racism or prejudice or, pre or oppression has ever existed, if you are in the side of the majority, this 
is never going to ring as loud as you, loud to you, as obviously to you, as if you were in the side of the minority that feels left out. And so my encouragement to you today is to pray with us and to start by finding people that you can have conversations with to ask them their experiences. And if you don't believe that racism is a big issue in America, your goal right now is just to ask questions. You're, you're not, your goal is not to become this champion of racial issues. I'm asking you to do that. I'm asking you to, to, to um, get understanding that's different than the understanding of your own. Um, so I'm going to finish with, with uh, praying, and Ryan's going to lead us in communion. God, I thank you for this time. I pray that you would provoke us to see what is true, that you would provoke us beyond our own opinions. You would provoke us beyond um, what we know, what we understand, what we comprehend. And you would take us deeper into the experience of you and deeper into the experience of others. I thank you, God, that you are an advocate for those who feel on the outside. Thank you that you, you, your justice always stands with those. And we pray your peace and your blessing and your understanding and a spirit of wisdom and revelation to rest on every person as we go. We bless you in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. Hey, I want to jump in and say one thing real quick. Uh, sorry, Ryan, before you take us into communion. For one thing, Jordan, I thought that today was an awesome, awesome word. Um, and really like spot on for, for where we're living right now. Um, but I want to say like even more specifically about that and the way that you highlighted the scripture, like it's always amazing to me how we can take a scripture and we can take an important point from it and make it like the main point, but somehow miss the main point. Like, you know, when we study, like, uh, a lot of us grew up in Pentecostal church and we, how many times did we talk about speaking in tongues or like the outpouring of the spirit and we make this huge deal out of it and we skip the point of the outpouring of the, like we skip the point of tongues in the first place. What was the original point of the tongues that day? It was so that the gospel would go to into all people groups and unite all people groups. And like, that was actually the, the original point of it, but somehow we missed the main point And then we like build a denomination around let's speak in tongues. Uh, instead of building a denomination around let's unify all the people groups around God's kingdom. And so I just want to just let everyone think about that and maybe where else you're doing that in, in scripture as well. Um, something I was thinking about too was just the last supper and, you know, we're about to do communion. So um, hopefully you have something near or at hand, or you can run and get something. Um, Maybe you already did while while you were waiting to figure out what was happening with me. But as at the same time, I mean, you know, on the same night that Jesus gave us what we're about to do, the Eucharist, the the um, he washed his disciples' feet. And he did that. You know, he could have chosen the last night that he was that he was walking um, with his disciples to do some kind of power play to show them like when things get tough, remember how, how big and bad I am. And, and what he did was the opposite. 
he took the last night as an opportunity to show them that if you have any power, use it to serve, use it to serve each other, use it to serve the least. And and I just think like, that's such a, you know, like I can remember um, just thinking about the last words that my dad was able to say to me before he passed away. And so like, there's so many things that Jesus said before he went to the cross that you could say were his last words, but I just think like that was such a powerful last act. And so, um, so as we do this, just re- be reminded of that invitation that whatever power you have been given, um, that it's time to use that. Um, or, you know, just ask, I like what you said, Jordan, that this isn't something that we just jump into the human spirit and what can we do? What can we accomplish? Um, it's an invitation. Um, you shut the door there. It's an invitation to, uh, to just ask, ask the Lord, like, what do you want me to do with what I've been given? What, what can I do with, with the little I have or the much I have? And, um, and I love the idea of just sitting down with someone and listening, listening to their stories. So with that in mind, uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the work of the gospel, the work of the cross that it's at work in us. Thank you for, um, for this table that you have set before us. Thank you for the bread, which represents your body broken for us. Thank you for your blood that represents the new covenant poured out for us. Thank you that they both combine together to reveal a life laid down a life laid down. You said you had the power to give it up, to give up your life and the power to take it up again. And you laid down your life. And, and as you did, you forgave those who did it. And so thank you for the invitation to join you in that. And um, just bless this time in Jesus name. Amen. Let's, uh, take some bread together. And drink together. Love you guys. Love you guys. Before we um, close out, I just want to uh, share something really quickly. Um, um, this is something on my heart, and I just, you know, we'll probably share this this week podcast. I just encourage you to get to invite people to listen to it. Um, but also in this next week, um, we're going to have Bob Hazlett. Um, here to speak on the pro- on the prophetic and and to prophesy over people um, on the Zoom call, and so we would just you know invite whoever you want to to um, participate in that. I'm really really excited about that. Um, you know, Bob speaks on some of the biggest platforms in the world, and he's just a good friend. And um, you know, we're just excited to have him joining us on the Zoom call this next week. And love love his heart 
And so don't, don't miss next, uh, next week. Also, uh, who can somebody unmute John? I just, I texted him and asked him if he had something to share. And I think he, I just kind of felt maybe that he did, but anyway. Yeah. Um, can you hear me? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I wanted Suzanne first to share. I may I may chime in a little bit, but I wanted, you know, Suzanne uh, works for Behind Every Door, and Behind Every Door goes into low-income, high-crime apartments, which are, generally speaking, somewhere around 90% African-American. And when we first started uh, Behind Every Door over 10 years ago, all of the staff, all of the leadership was white. And uh, all of the people that we were ministering to were black. And uh, now, uh, most all of the staff is African-American. And so um, through these 10, 11 years, plus just coming into contact with the different races on the streets before that, when we were in Deep Ellum, um, uh, I just wanted Sudan just to share maybe a couple of things that we've, we've learned, we've found in terms of racial reconciliation. Um, Jordan, I, thank you so much for doing this today. Yeah. I just, I, I can't tell you what it means and it inspires me. And so thank you for doing this. And, and just the idea that this is so, so intrinsically connected to the heart of the gospel. And if that's really true, then what does that, what does that call upon us as as believers and just the willingness to say, all right, let's let's get that up on the table and think about it and pray about it. And I guess just, you know, quickly what I would say, you know, over this 10 years, I, I love what you said about proximity is what brings understanding. And I feel like, you know, for me personally, what's happened over this 10 years is because I, I spend all day every day in that community and because the people I work with the closest every day are talking about those sorts of experiences that you reported as just norm. Like that story that you led with, Jordan, in, in my experience with them, isn't an anomaly, it's normal. And, and for instance, when I asked one of the young men, I said, well, you, I remember one time you talked to me about being pulled over by the police when you hadn't done anything wrong. And can you tell me that story again? And he goes, well, which story is that? Like, was that last month or the one before that or this month? Like that happens all the time. And so for me, it's given me a window. But what you've challenged me for, to, you know, today is I feel like my heart has been kind of wrecked over the last years in starting to realize some things about myself even and just where we are as the church. But then secondly, where does that, where where can I and where, where will I give a voice? And I think just to kind of summarize that, I, here's, here's the two things I'm thinking about for me personally in my heart is there's explicit racism and there's implicit racism. And implicit racism are the things that probably most of us may have in our hearts that we don't even really realize it so that's one thing and then the second thing and here's the question is does a fish know it's wet 
And I would propose to you that it does not know it's wet because it's always been wet and it's, it's life. And I feel like for me, I think white privilege is my water. That's what I've lived with all my life and it's normal. And I don't know that I'm living with it. So to your point, all those things about I'm maybe don't have to think about my kids going to the gas station after 10. So that's, that's just all just to say, I, I would just say, yes, thank you so much. And for us to begin to look in our own hearts about maybe what's implicit and what are those, those places that I've lived in all my life in white privilege and I'm, I haven't even been aware of, and then just challenging us to, to be willing to speak. So thank you so much. I just just quickly want to add, you know, I mean, I, I grew up, Suzanne and I grew up in the 50s and 60s when there was segregation uh, in the in in the uh, in the nation. And, you know, again, for me growing up, that was just the way things were. I mean, that was just the norm. That was just as you started out, Jordan, that was the culture that we lived in. And actually, I don't think that was challenged in my own mind until probably 25 years ago. And um, I, I just would challenge anybody who might have the attitude of, well, this is just the way things are, to say, well, no, what, what is the way things should be? I think we just rest on that question of what are the way things should be? Before we um, do the announcements, let's just pause for a moment and just wait. I just want to say this i i feel like i definitely feel like the holy spirit like that i i felt this this last two weeks in house church too and i felt this in prayer increasingly um recently it's like i think for a long time i felt the physical presence of god and then for a long time i didn't feel the physical presence of god and i actually didn't get anxious about that a lot of people if maybe you felt that and you stop feeling it and you get anxious, like it didn't make me anxious. I just, God's present, you know, and I, but the last couple of weeks I've really felt that the, when I, I, uh, when I was, uh, when Anton came and talked, I got the opportunity to go back to their church and talk. And we talked about some of these same issues. And when I was there, I felt such a physical, like, weight of God on my chest. And I feel that same weight of God on my chest right now. It's like it's, he's in here and pressing on me at the same time. And I just say that to say, 
I feel that right now. And I feel that this is very, um, I feel that it's very pressing on God's heart, um, this subject. Regardless of whether we feel that it's a big issue, it is a big issue because it's been a big issue since the dawn of time. And it's an issue for our culture right now. And it's, and it's uh, central to God's goal is to bring people. In fact, the very end picture of scripture is Revelation 24, that, that um, the, tree of, the river of life is coming through and the tree of life is there. And, and it is the healing for all nations. Like that is the, that is the final picture of the gospel fulfilled is the, is the, is the healing of all nations under God's presence in God's presence. And just as I sit here and talk about it, I just feel that like, like if we were sitting in service, that, that moment in worship where you feel God heavy, like I feel that right now. And I just think God's just saying like, Hey, this is really important to me. And I want to relay that importance to you. And I don't know if anybody else has something they want to say. Um, I just feel the. Ryan wants to say something. Good. Yeah, I was just going to say, um, and I've thought about this a lot. Of, thought of, about this a lot since the, the coronavirus and the and the uh, social distancing, the, the kind of like the, uh, I, you know, I didn't realize how, how many implicit, Suzanne talked about implicit racism um, and how many, I, I didn't realize the lens I was living in until I got out of my context. When, I, when we moved to Thailand, um, for some reason, things just started to be be more aware to me. The way that I thought and felt about things, the way that I, the way that I perceived the world should be, or or was, or even could be, a lot of these things just became aware for the. I became aware of for the first time, and so I think we all have this gift right now of being out of our context, and it, it's such. And we can use this moment to have conversations with the Lord, with each other, with new friends, where we listen to new perspectives. That's basically what I was forced to do when I was out of my context. I had the opportunity to just continue like trying to power through living in Thailand as an American um, or listen to people. And I started to learn so much and it really did reshape the way that I saw things. And so I just want to encourage us all that this is that same kind of moment. We're all out of our context. Even if you're still working, it's not the same. And so it's a moment where we can look and we have been as, as a community, we have been looking at things the way we do things. You have been, I'm sure each of you have been looking at the way that you do things of where you do things and why you do things. But I think this is a really important one to add to the list. And so I want to encourage us all to just ask the Lord, how have I been thinking about this? And like John said, how could things be? And when you get that, that image in your mind or that thought in your mind of how things could be, I think follow that up with, 
What do you want me to do, Lord? And that could be a conversation with, uh, with an old friend. For me, it was um, when I first got back from Thailand, I, I met um, a friend of mine who's, who's black. We grew up together and I just sat down with him and I asked him like, what, what's life been like, you know, for the past 20 years? So, um, and I want to do more of this too. So I just want to encourage us all to just take this moment. We're out of our context to reevaluate, reevaluate the way that we perceive racism and things like that to be. And then just ask the Lord, like John said, what is possible? And, and if that's possible, if that image and that thought that you get in your mind is possible, what do you want me to do with that, Lord?